What's up, fools? It is April 13th, 2021. Welcome to the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? Everybody having a good day? This podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I want to thank them for their support, and then I'm going to shout out some of my patrons that we're going to get well on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion. There is a link to them in my podcast description. They've been in business for a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They're great people to work with. They turn around my orders quickly. And QTR podcast listeners have their own rep at JM Bullion. Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. She'd be happy to help you out with anything at all that you guys would need. What do you think about that? Some private service. You guys don't deserve it, you degenerates, but you're going to get it anyways if you want it. So I want to shout out Jam Bullion. What's up? This podcast also brought to you by my friends Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus who have the single best piece of software available if you want to track flows coming into the illiquid options market. Let me tell you something, folks. The Steam Room is a staple. It has been around Also, almost for a decade, it is a constantly evolving piece of software that gives you insights as to where the money is coming into the options market, which can be very lucrative information. It's more than just unusual options activity. This is a proprietary piece of software that Lucci and his team use to track sweeps in the options market and other unusual things that happen on the tape. So it gives you great insight as to some of the psychology into the market that you're not going to get anywhere else. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have been perfecting this piece of software for almost a decade now. The link to that is in my podcast description. They'll give you a free trial. Just tell them QTR sent you. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, another great platform if you're an investor, if you're interested in macro, if you look at things from the Austrian school like we do, if you're skeptical of all things central banks, if you hate bullshit and all you want is some real, unadulterated, unfiltered truth, George Gammon, Lynn Alden, and Chris McIntosh come together to give you Rebel Capitalist Pro. I read the forums every single day. The link to that is in my podcast description. You might even catch me over on the forums there one of these days. Plus, George has Rebel Rebel Capitalist Live coming up this summer, which is a live event he's going to be doing in Miami. George Gammon is very popular for a reason. He's got like a million subscribers because he's a very smart guy. Um, and I've had him on this show. I'm going to have him back on again soon. He's a dear friend of mine. He's an honest person to do business with, and Rebel Capitalist Pro is a wonderful, wonderful platform, and it's relatively cheap, too. You can check that out in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy Pete over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a wonderful day trading community. It's a great place if you're an active trader and you want a new daily watch list to look at every day, you want to bounce your ideas off somebody, you want investor educations, if you're the kind of person that trades all markets, red, green, up, down, and sideways, check out Pete over at The Trader's Path. He has also spent the last couple of years developing his beautiful platform, The Trader's Path, where him and his traders hang out, discuss ideas. It's a wonderful community that he started because he got tired of the bullshit in other trading communities. What do you think about that shit? So I highly recommend all of the above. Please check them out. All their links are in my podcast description. Show them some love. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. Love you guys. Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul. 
Let's hop right to it today, folks. There's a two-drink minimum. Three-drink minimum. Sorry. Did I say two? Jesus. You know what the problem is? I haven't had my two-drink minimum yet, so my mind is not flowing properly the way that it should be till I knock those first couple back. It's like my golf swing, really. You know, I get out on the course, and I have zero drinks, and I go to swing a golf club, and it looks like... I don't know what it looks like. I, I Basically, I look like what Joe Biden looked like going up the Air Force One steps a couple weeks ago. You know, the Jesus Christ. Now he fucking falls over. He, he gets up after the first time he falls over. And he's like, all right, no, maybe nobody saw it, you know? <laughs> maybe nobody saw that. As long as I don't fall down again, I should be fine. And as soon as that thought passes through his head, he falls down again. And he gets up a second time and probably thought to himself, well, it can't get any worse than that. Time to keep going up the stairs. And no sooner does his brain process that thought than he's on his ass a third time. Ladies and gentlemen, the most powerful man in the world, Joe Biden. That's what my golf swing looks like. My, my golf swing on zero drinks is the equivalent of that. And if I have like two or three drinks, I slip into like the butter zone, which is just... You know, my swing is going to be fucking terrible no matter what. I mean, it's just terrible. I never took lessons. My clubs are too short for me. There's a, a, you know, I'm not a very coordinated person in general. There's all kinds of problems. Even at my best, my swing is going to look like ass. But around two to three drinks, I'm in like the butter zone. My swing's as good as it's going to get. Occasionally, I'll even hit a ball straight. What do you think about that? Doesn't happen often. But that's usually when it's going to happen. Those first two, if I have like, and usually when I'm golfing, somebody brings Coors Lights or something, you know, it's not, you know, a golfers, uh, you know, they, they, they're not trying to do too much alcohol-wise on the course. They're just, hey, a couple of guys get together, have some beers, you know. So usually I get that first like two Coors Lights in and then maybe you get that one guy in the in the foursome with you that like snuck half a joint in or has a little handle of Jameson, like one of the little pocket fuckers that you can put in your jacket. And maybe I take that that little, you know, whatever, or that little drink right there. And that's the butter zone right there as it exists. Two to three drinks, I'm laughing, I'm making jokes. My swing doesn't look halfway decent. Things that, you know, I would things that I was seeing two of, I'm now seeing one of. My My vision goes from like, you know, I don't know what bad vision is. 40, 20? Is that good? Bad 15, 20? My vision goes from shit to like 20, 20, crystal clear, and I slip into that groove. That's where I need to be. Then there's another problem. If you overshoot the little area I like to call the butter zone, and you wind up in the three plus drink and or shot territory on the golf course, which usually, based on my playing experience, usually comes around like hole nine. That's... I'm thinking about all the times I've gone out and just decided, fuck it. Just put everything back in the cart. We're not even going to finish. And let's just go to the bar because that's what we all want to do anyways. Nobody even likes golf. (laughs) The fuck are we doing out here to begin with? When I slip into that, you know, three plus drink category, then everything goes all askew again. Then I go back to Joe Biden on the Air Force One steps, except I'm in the middle of a golf course and uh, usually people are yelling at us from behind us, and it's a bad scene generally. So now that you know all of that, I guess we could talk about finance. I don't really know why I was on that tangent to begin with, but I got a couple of things I wanted to address today. The first thing that I would like to do today is offer myself a congratulatory moment. (laughs) If you don't mind, 
This is my podcast, but you'll notice that the S&P is over 4,000, and for a while during 2020, when it seemed as though all hell was going to break loose and that we were never going to recover for what was going to be a devastating global pandemic that would wipe out half of human you know, civilization as we know it, and after the Fed launched their uh, bazooka back in March of 2020, and the market was bemused with it at the time, the market really didn't do anything after that QE announcement. I did go on the record in March of 2020, and I was one of the first to say that the S&P is going to go bananas. Uh, and that is exactly what has happened. As a matter of fact, I said several times, it's going to be a race between gold and the S&P uh, to 4,000. And obviously, the S&P won that race. And gold is uh, has underperformed really since then in a big way. Some of that money has gone into Bitcoin. I think eventually some of it will rotate back into gold. I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, and also due to uh, real rates, which is what gold is watching, uh, I think, and consumer prices, which also is one thing that gold trades on. And so uh, gold has you know parked around thirteen hundred. I mean uh, seventeen hundred dollars an ounce, which is still up. From um, you know May of 2018, when I really first started discussing why I was long gold and why I liked it uh, at that case learning conference that I did in New York City, so uh, still up, you know, I don't know, 20% since then, but definitely has been outperformed by Bitcoin, which any Bitcoiner will let you know because in their world, past performance is indicative of future results. And so the the continued arguments I saw this morning, my friend Spencer Schiff on Twitter, once again, very eager to point out that Bitcoin had hit an all new new all time high and that over X amount of time, it has outperformed gold by X amount. OK, you know, that's fine. But what does that mean? That happened already. You know, if I told you Apple stock went up 200 percent in May of 2019. Does that mean buy Apple stock now? Not necessarily. So I still think it is a little bit misguided to point to past performance as an indicator of future results for an asset class that is still kind of brand new, that there's still really, we don't know what kind of regulations there's going to be around it, and really revolves around something that doesn't exist. I mean, it's code. I mean, it exists on computers, it exists electronically, digitally, but it doesn't exist physically. It doesn't exist without those uh, underlying computers, which, interestingly enough, gold is used to make, you know, some of the microprocessors on those computers. So I think given all those things, I think it's a, still a bit of a fallacy to point to Bitcoin's past performance as an indicator of what it's going to do in the future. I do think the too-big-to-fail case for gold is getting interesting. This is something I've mentioned on Twitter as a, as a potential bull case a number of times, which is, you know, at some point, Bitcoin is going to weave itself into the fabric of the financial system uh, so much that, you know, we're not going to have any choice but to adopt it. And I think we're moving in that direction. So I think that's a positive. And I'm capable of saying positive things about Bitcoin. I just, it's just not in my nature to buy what somebody is selling me when it's brand new and we really have an opaque view into the future and we don't really know, you know, it's an unprecedented experiment, not unlike, you know, K2 
Keynesian economics itself, the way that that's gone off the rails lately. So I don't think it's absolutely insane to continue approaching crypto with a lot of skepticism. And I love, love, love when people tell me, ah, you know, cope, just cope, man. You missed it. Cope, bro. Fucking have fun, be a bore, bro. You know, ah, quote is triggered. I'm not triggered. I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? I love my life. I wake up in the morning. I go get my coffee. I work with wonderful people. I'm a happy fucking dude. I'm not sitting around all day mulling whether, you know, why I missed the, uh, the, the rise in Bitcoin. You know what I say to myself is, man, I still, knowing what I know about Bitcoin's price now, I still wouldn't have gone back and allocated a ton of my assets to it. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't allow, uh, you know, the fact that this uh, long shot came in to rewrite the way that I think about risk. That's putting the cart before the horse. That's really thinking that past performance is going to be indicative of future results. And that's just not how I'm wired. Maybe that's just my generation. And I try to think about, you know, these 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds that are involved in crypto. I mean, if you're 20 years old, you've never seen a systemic financial crisis in any way that's been meaningful to you. I mean, if you're 20 years old, right, you were seven when the housing crisis happened in 2007, 2008. How fucking crazy is that? First off, that makes me feel old. But I mean, you haven't really endured it. And you, you certainly haven't endured it in any way that, you know, was consequential to you. You know, when I was seven years old, I didn't know what was going on in the economy, whether my parents were buying or selling their house for a loss, whether the market was up or the market was down. My mom mentioned to me one time the market was doing so well that after we bought our first house, we turned around and we sold it, you know, two years later because prices had appreciated so much. You know what I said? I didn't say, oh, yeah, mom, I was tracking the uh, the home price index when I was seven. I knew that. I said, no, that's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, so if you're if you're 20 years old now, you don't know shit about what it's like to be staring, you know, down the cliff of a fucking Lehman Brothers or a Madoff or an Enron. You have no idea. You have no clue. You read it and it's like ancient history. And what happens is when something like that occurs, it really it adds some calluses to your skin in terms of the types of risk that you allow in as an investor and really your general sophistication when it comes to finance. I mean, Spencer's a fucking smart kid, man. He's probably a hell of a lot smarter than I am. You know what I mean? But he's 18 now, and his father probably knows more about the fucking housing crisis than anybody else, but he didn't live through it. He didn't live through it with any type of, you know, consequence. I don't know what he was doing when it happened. He was five years old, maybe, when the when the housing crisis happened. So, you know, it doesn't hit for him the way that it hit for people that endured it, that felt the financial consequences of it, that, you know, really had to deal with austerity when it happened. And I think a lot of traders out there remember that stuff. You can say the same thing about 9-11, right? You can read about 9-11 in a textbook, just like I can read about Pearl Harbor. But I wasn't in the fucking country when Pearl Harbor happened. I don't know what it felt like. I don't know what the zeitgeist was like, the ethos of the country, what people were thinking, how in shock and awe people were when, you know, the president was assassinated, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I read about that in a history book. I can't imagine what that was like. It must have been like an absolutely devastating time. must have been devastating for the country. You know, I would be devastated if somebody assassinated the president, regardless of who it is. 
You know, just because it just takes a jab at you as a as a country. Um, and so if you don't live through it, you don't really know. And back when I was talking about COVID, because I spent a lot of the weekend going through some of my old podcasts, Periscope sent me an email and said that they're shutting down. So I went back and listened to some of the Periscopes that I did back in March and April of 2020. And some of the things that I was saying is I was trying to analyze COVID and what the long-term effects we're going to be on COVID to the economy and the market, uh, you know, a month after really the whole nation had just kind of figured it out that it was going to happen, and about three months after I had really started to pick up on it. And as you know, I mean, there was a small group of us that were on it pretty early. So I went back and I listened to all those things. And one of the things that I said in one of the periscopes was, you know, or maybe it was a podcast, I don't remember, but I said, you know, it's... The attitude was very laissez-faire back in March and April 2020. People were like, ah, coronavirus, it's nothing. I remember one account in particular I was following. It's just the flu. I'm not stopping what I'm doing because of the flu. Blah, 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 blah. It's nothing. It's this. You know, Elon Musk, you know, by April, cases will be gone. And people were writing it off. And hey, regardless of what you think about COVID and whether or not it is a big deal or it isn't, you had to try to have some foresight as to how the nation was going to receive it, how the nation was going to deal with it, right? Of course, we overshot the mark, I think, uh, quite a bit. But look, if you want to be an analyst and you want to protect yourself and your assets and you want to have some insight as to where the market's going to go and where the economy's going to go, you have to size that shit up in your head. And one of the things that I said is it's not a big deal until one day, one morning, you wake up and it's a big deal. Right? The entire attitude of the country can shift like that. Once the media adopts a story, once the chief scientists start to adopt a story, once people start to, you know, understand. I mean, I think if you're in the media, it's when that you see that inflection point, like, oh, we can make money off covering this and scaring the shit out of people. Right? Maybe that's it. But it doesn't matter. At some point, the media adopts it, it becomes a big deal, it becomes the lead story, then it becomes the lead story every day. You know, then, like I said, we overshoot our mark. Everybody gets fucking scared shitless. This entire country was scared shitless for most of 2020. Some of the country's still scared shitless now. I just saw a guy walking down fucking Second Street with nobody within, you know, 200 feet of him with two masks on. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I mean, it's still like residual effects of just being scared. I know in Philadelphia you're supposed to wear a mask when you're outside, but let's, can we get real? I mean, can we just get real, folks? If you're outside and there's nobody around you for a thousand feet in every direction, what are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, I don't want anybody to not uphold the mask mandate or whatever the rule is. I haven't even taken the time to familiarize myself with it. But when I'm outside and I'm walking through the city and there's nobody near me, what are you wearing a mask for? I don't know. Anyways, back to what I was saying. It doesn't become real until one day you wake up and it's real. And that's what happened. I don't know what the exact date was, but this country went to bed like one day in March and we woke up the next morning one day in March and all of a sudden shit had gotten very real. Very real. We stopped air travel. We stopped cruise lines and that turned into 15 days to slow the spread and that turned into, you know, 15 years to slow the spread or whatever we're on now. 
I mean, it got very real. It became the front page story. It was all over the media. People were scared shitless. There was a run on toilet paper. There was a run on ammonia. There was a run on bleach. There was a run on groceries. There were lines outside of Costco. It all hell broke loose. You remember those like three weeks? Shit got a little hairy. It didn't get too bad. Didn't get too bad, but it just got a little hairy. And those are the types of exogenous events that you have to be mindful of. And Bitcoin is an unregulated, you know, quote unquote asset that nobody knows where it came from. Nobody knows who Satoshi is. You know, I read online the other day, Bitcoin could be China's attempt to usurp, you know, the dollar as reserve currency. Now, is that the truth? Probably not. Is it possible? Yeah, it is. Because nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I know everybody has theories. And nobody knows. And meanwhile, here this thing is just kind of threading its way into the global economy. You know, Bitcoin is just kind of, like I said, it's getting a little too big to fail. It's becoming a part and parcel of everything. I mean, what happens one day if we learn that, oh, this was a creation of Beijing or it was a creation of the Kremlin? Then what happens, you know? And don't say that there's 0% chance of that shit happening or something similar. Well, Chris, it doesn't matter because everything's open source and everything's on the blockchain and we can see everything. Yeah, but do you think the U.S. government would be happy if that was the case? Do you think fucking, you know, the Treasury Department would be happy if that's the case? Do you think the Fed and, you know, the Federal Reserve would be happy if that was the case? No. And the government, as much as we hate to admit it, and we don't like it, they wield immense power. They have immense power. If the fucking IRS says pay this, you better pay it. If the fucking police show up at your door, you're going. Whether or not you want to go or not, it sucks, but that's how that's the world we live in right now. So if you don't think that FinCEN or somebody could, you know, impose rules or the IRS could impose rules to severely maim or limit Bitcoin in the country. If you think there's a 0% chance of that happening, you're dead wrong. I mean, you're dead. It may not be a 50% chance or a 100% chance, but it's not zero. It's not zero. And if you live through these exogenous events, and in my case with COVID, if you predict them before fucking, you know, they catch on in the mainstream, you start to think to yourself, wow, all right, maybe the thesis isn't bulletproof. I mean, how can a thesis be bulletproof with an asset that doesn't tangibly exist, that nobody knows where it came from, right? <laughs> that we haven't tried to regulate yet. How can it, how can it be risk-free? Can't be risk-free. I asked Anthony Pompliano the other day. Because apparently two weeks ago, I had this conversation with him on Twitter where he pushed back on something I said or vice versa, or maybe I was giving him some lip service. And I said, dude, let's just talk about it. Why don't you come on the podcast and we can talk about it? Or I'll come on your podcast. I don't give a shit. You know, and he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he said, DM me. So I DM'd him and I said, when are we getting together? And he said, nothing. So then I kept bothering him on direct message. I said, when are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? And then finally he sent me a message back and said, I'm at dinner. Chill out. I said, I'm fucking relaxed. You're the one that just said DM me. Don't act like you don't have time to talk to me now after I can see you tweeting for the last fucking 30 minutes. 
You know, you might be at dinner, but you're on your phone on Twitter. I'm watching you tweet. So either, I don't know what the deal is. I sent him another DM, asked him when he wanted to come on. I'm not sure that he does want to come on or that he does want to talk to me. I think he's ducking me. But anyways, so I asked him a series of questions, a couple of which he responded to. You know, I said like, well, what, what are the chances that, that your thesis on Bitcoin is incorrect? He said 4%. I said, okay, 4%. So take 4%, even if that is, in, you know, is that is that reasonable? Is it is 4% a reasonable risk assessment for, you know, Bitcoin not going to the moon? I don't know. I don't think so. I would probably pin it at, you know, 15 or 20% or whatever. And by the way, I'm long Bitcoin stuff. I'm long crypto stuff. I'm long Silvergate. I'm long GBTC. It's all this shit like, oh, you missed out. You know, you're sh- keep shorting Bitcoin. Like, okay, morons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's like you never tried to develop and vet a thesis on a company before. You never got long something and wanted to wanted to hear the best short case for it, or you never got short and wanted to hear the best long case for it. Give me a fucking break. So, uh, so Pompliano says four percent. So I'm like, all right, well, four percent. Like, how how does that reflect in his public statements about Bitcoin? So I went through some of his tweets. You know, and I give him credit. He did put out a tweet back in January that was like, hey, you could lose all your money. So I got to show him some love for that. I think that's a very responsible thing to do. But uh, but his whole feed is just, it's just, you know, Bitcoin is inevitable. That was today. Elon Musk and Tesla are up almost 2x on their Bitcoin purchase. That was also today. Also today, every morning I write a letter to over 155,000 investors to explain what is happening with Bitcoin in simple language. Also today, remember when the halving was priced in? Also today, Bitcoin is up 815% in the last 12 months. Great. What does that mean for tomorrow? Nobody knows and nothing. That's like going to the roulette wheel and seeing that the number 15's come out five times in a row and saying it's got to come out a sixth time. Also today, Bitcoin is at a new all-time high. And then these little, like, analogs. You put, you know, hire the best people you can find. Okay. Like, does that need to be said? <laughs> Remember in the office when Jim goes to sell paper with Andy and they go to the high school and Andy's like, all right, Tuna, let's do a good job today. And Jim's like, does that, did that need to be said? <laughs> Seek out those willing to say the unpopular truth. That's what he tweeted yesterday. The unpopular truth is nobody fucking knows what's going to happen with Bitcoin. That's the unpopular truth, buddy. I love you, Pompliano. I do, brother. But that's the unpopular truth. That's unpopular for people that are betting it all on Bitcoin. And whatever. Hey, more tweets from last week. Jim Cramer is asking to be paid in Bitcoin. Everyone, eventually, everyone asks to be paid in Bitcoin. Keep pushing the pace, Jim Cramer. Yeah, like the Fed's going to be fine about that. Everybody asks to be paid in Bitcoin. The IR, Like the IRS is going to accept taxes in Bitcoin. <laughs> Today has one of those Bitcoin critics were really wrong vibes to it. It is time for Bitcoin ETFs to be approved. Galaxy Digital has filed for a Bitcoin ETF. MicroStrategy has announced they are paying their board in Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is a legend. One of my goals this year is to help 10,000 people get hired in the Bitcoin crypto industry. I mean, there's a lot. I don't even know if there's four skeptical tweets for every 96 positive tweets about Bitcoin, right? I mean... I don't know if you if there's a reflection of I think if he thinks four percent chance that it's not going to work, maybe he should just work four out of every hundred tweets in there 
Maybe just some shit like, reminder, we don't know who Sakatoshi Nakamoto is. Have a nice day. Love, Pompliano. That'd be great. Like, something like that. And we got all this other stuff. Decentralization is inevitable. Yeah. Is it, though? Is it? Is the government going to like that? Is the government going to like decentralization? Are they going to like... You know, if, if you just... Dis- this is like reminds me of those sovereign citizens. You know, when those fucking people get pulled over. I'm like, sir, uh, and I see your license of registration... People are like, no, you cannot. No, you cannot. I am answerable only to uh, my interpretations of common law, and I don't recognize U.S. currency, and I'm free of any legal constraints in the United States. And the police officer's like, that's nice. Get in the fucking police car now. (laughs) You can tell it to a judge. You know, and then they go in front of the judge. They always have some stupid shit that they printed out off the internet. You know, the judge is like, excuse me, sir, how do you plead? And it's like, well, uh, I declare that I am not a citizen of the United States. Well, where do you reside? Toledo, Ohio. Oh, all right. Well, unfortunately, I hate to tell you, you are a citizen of the United States. You know, so to say decentralization is inevitable. And by the way, I've never seen anybody fucking like do well with that in court. I used to watch those YouTube videos all the time of people doing that sovereign citizen shit in court, they, they always wind up fucking paying the fine or going to jail or with the warrant out for their arrest. Just like, shit, you know, the, that's what I mean. The bureaucracy is just so massive. It's just so massive. So decentralization is inevitable. Like the United States, like the Treasury Department is just going to let people start lending money. This is the other thing too, the DeFi lending that's happening, right? People just lending money amongst themselves, and, uh, and getting it back and, you know, there's no problem. I'm going to send you some Bitcoin. You send it back to me, you know, send me back some Ethereum with interest or whatever. And that's fine. You can't even give gifts in the United States without being asked to report it to the IRS. You can't do that. You know, I mean, it's just the fact that, they, that these people think there's going to be this big decentralized uh, economy that's going to exist outside of the uh, governance of the current economy. I mean, there may be a hybrid, like I said, but the, there's not going to be like a full decentralization, you know? I mean, it's just, I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's reasonable. But, hey, that's what makes a market. That's my opinion, you know? And again, I'm long crypto assets. I'm not sitting here. You know, I think right problem and maybe the solution isn't as great as they think, but I think it's trying to address the right problem, right? We're printing too much money and there is a lot of hot money coming into crypto so i do have some exposure to it but i'm not sitting here telling you it's going to replace the dollar it's going to be the end all be all and i'm definitely not saying it's going to replace gold i mean it's not like the federal reserve is holding fucking you know gold i mean uh bitcoin and reserves they're holding gold you know so where does the buck stop at the end of the day who's gonna who's gonna determine whether or not bitcoin is or is not against the law? Is that Pompliano? Or is it, you know, is it the Bitcoin collective that just wields so much power that they have no choice? It's like, all right, we'll keep it, we'll keep it legal, but there's gonna be regulations. Hey, if FinCEN and IRS says there's regulations, there's gonna be regulations. And that's it. Because if you violate those regulations, then you're in violation of the law. And if you violate the law, then you gotta go to fucking court. And you gotta stand in front of a judge. And you gotta say, I'm guilty, because this is the law, and I fucking fucked it up. And then you got to go to jail or pay a fine or go on probation. And then eventually people stop doing it. That's how the law works. 
<laughs> you know? This is, you can't go in, you can't fucking, you know, launder $5 million in drug money and then go stand in front of a judge and tell him you're a sovereign citizen and, uh, and everything's fine. So anyway, so I do have a little bit of skepticism about Bitcoin and I don't think it's insane. I don't think it's insane. So I just think that if you're every day, if you're just constantly, all right, now we got the laser eyes. And if you don't have the laser eyes now, you're not in the, you're not, you're not pro-Bitcoin. You can't be pro-Bitcoin and not have the laser eyes in your picture. I mean, can you think of a more useless gesture? You know, I analyze pump and dump companies for a living. I have done research onto an immense amount of frauds. And if there's one thing that's consistent about a lot of companies that are worth zero and or are total frauds, it's they are masters of useless gestures. Press releases that, you know, are 10,000 words that say nothing. And partnerships with LLCs that don't exist and have one employee. And shell companies in the Cayman Islands and this and that and the other. It just feels like that. It just feels like empty. Like, all right, like, what do you get from doing that? Not really. I mean, you kind of just create this, I don't know, this... uh this thing where like, all right, if, if everybody's not doing it, then you're, then you're an idiot or something. I don't know. Like if you're, you know, you don't do that, you're, you're a moron. You, you don't know what you're doing. You're not, I can't tell you how many people are like, you don't understand it. You don't understand Bitcoin. I'm like, could the problem be that I do understand it? <laughs> could that be the issue? Could the issue be that I'm seeking more information? But again, if you're 18, you're 20 years old, you're 22, you've never dealt with any financial crisis at all. You just take things at face value and you just pump to pump. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people out there. There's people putting Dogecoin on their, do- on their, on their dog sheet, on their balance sheet right now. You know? Hey, to each his own and everybody will eat their own cooking. If you're an 18-year-old with fucking acne and a wedgie and you're driving a Lamborghini now because you bought Bitcoin at one and it went to 60000 fucking congratulations for you. I am, couldn't be happier for you. I really couldn't. But, hey, past performance is not indicative of future results. And as Bitcoin gets bigger, it's going to face a lot of challenges that it hasn't faced now in these nascent stages, right? It's like Tesla, you know, ballooned to this insane valuation before anybody really caught on to kind of how the market was being bamboozled. And now it's got so big, but at some point there's different risks now for Tesla. You know, that company has a different risk profile with a trillion dollar market cap or a $2 trillion market cap than it does with a $60 billion market cap, it becomes a more attractive short. It's, you know, far less easy to make the case that it isn't overvalued. I mean, you see some of these sell-side notes that come out trying to explain the price movement with all these stupid bullshit, you know, oh, it's the 2037 Tesla energy estimates that we tacked into the fucking thing. It's like, fuck me. Like, can you just say it's overvalued? Are you capable of saying that it's overvalued? Are you capable of it, Jonas? Or do you have to, you know, ride the price? You have to let the price keep going up and keep moving your target up. I mean, you're not predicting where Tesla's going. Tesla's predicting where you're going. Tesla is analyzing you, Adam Jonas. That's really the case. Tesla goes to 500, Jonas raises his target to 400. Tesla goes to 600, Jonas raises his target to 550. Tesla goes to 800, Jonas raises his target to 750. The stock is analyzing you at that point. Come on. And I think, uh, I just think, again, as Bitcoin grows in size, I think there's some advantages to it growing. But I think also, too, it's going to face new risks. And the risk profile, as with any asset, 
that changes drastically in price, the risk and the reward profile will change accordingly. And all I'm saying is we should be mindful of that. That's it. And instead, I got a million peckerheads with acne blowing up my Twitter screen telling me I'm an idiot. I know I'm an idiot. I don't need you to tell me that. But I think I'm raising some good points here. And Pompliano, if you want to fucking come on, dude, let's do it. We can talk. I'm not some, you know, psychopath. I'm capable of having a normal conversation. Kind of. (laughs) So back to COVID, right? The Bitcoin exogenous event. And again, I don't know if regulation's a pro or a con for Bitcoin. You know, regulation might be the validation that Bitcoin needs. People say, all right, it's, it's recognized by the government as an asset now. Okay, that's good. You know, or it might be, uh, might be not what it needs. It might slow things down a little bit. I mean, if we found out that it was created by a foreign entity, I'm not sure that we would be that happy about it. I don't know. So, you know, we throw that shit right on the d- domestic terrorist list like we do with everything else we don't like. And, uh, and that could be a wrap. So who knows? But as I see it put on the balance sheet of more and more major corporate investment banks, I think it's less likely uh, that, you know, I think that uh, all things being equal and no big skeleton in the closet like uh, the China situation, which I just talked about. I think if that's the case, I think that um, it could, you know, exist in hybrid with the financial system. So who knows? I think there's definitely use for blockchain, right? Blockchain just makes sense. So I think that, uh, you know, I like blockchain assets, um, but we'll have to see. We will have to see. I mean, essentially, you have an entire group of an unlimited number of new digital currencies that don't exist tangibly, but only exist digitally, vying for control over a global economy where every government, and especially, you know, the powerful ones, are probably very happy having their currency be the one uh, in control, like the digital yuan they're doing now, okay? So, I, you know, it, to me, it doesn't make sense that this thing can just ride in and fucking pull the rug out from the, underneath the entire global economic system. I could be wrong. I've been wrong in the past. But those are my legitimate questions. So going back to COVID, right? You wake up one morning and things are different, just like I said. You know, everybody woke up one morning in March and April and things were different. I don't know when it was for your particular family or whatever, but there's some point where most people said, all right, I got to buy a mask. Or some point, you know, where most people said, let's go see if we have some food. Or maybe we shouldn't go out today. Or maybe we should stay in. There was some point when people started to watch the news religiously and watch the case count religiously. And so all I'm saying is those types of events, those types of turnarounds, those types of being blindsided, it can happen. It can happen. Remember in February? Nobody even cared. There were like a couple thousand fucking cases in Wuhan. No one cared. No one cared. It was this, you know, it was a secondary headline. That number, that case count used to come across at like 6 p.m. every night, used to hit the terminal. Nobody cared. And I'm sitting there tweeting in February, like, what's going on? You know, how come nobody cares about this yet? And lo and behold, you know, we had to just wait another month, and then all of a sudden, everybody fucking cared about it. So the same thing is possible with any asset, with any security, with any situation in life. There's always risk. There's never zero risk, ever. Nothing is ever a sure thing. There are things that may be very, very close to a sure thing, but everybody that bets sports knows that you take that game on the live line to fucking juice a parlay when a team's up by 
12 runs, I'll never forget for as long as I live. For as long as I live, I bet on a baseball game. I think it was in 2011. Give me a second. I'm going to find it. I'm going to pause this. I'm going to find it because I want to accurately describe this. All right, I found it. I'll never forget it for as long as I live. July 20th, 2009 was the date. July 20th, 2009. And I had bet on the Minnesota Twins against the Oakland Athletics. And... I, so I pulled up an article here. The Twins went up by 10 runs. 10 in baseball. Right on the live line, they would be minus a trillion. You would have to lay, you'd have to lay a million dollars probably to win $100. That's how much of a sure thing this game was. I'm going to read you the article, and I'm going to tell you what happened. This article is from uh, July 20th, 2009. The Twins issued the warning in Texas at home in the Bay Area. The A's play the Twins hard, but... Minnesota couldn't have predicted this. At one point in Monday's sloppily pitched debacle, Minnesota led 12-2. They lost 14-13 in epic fashion with a bullpen meltdown and a botched game-ending call at home plate. And this day, I was out with my buddy. We went to Mako's to go play pool. Mako's used to be a bar on South Street that used to be open. They had a pool table on the second floor where guys used to go in and hustle. You know, they play it for like 20 bucks a game. And uh, and we were all right. Like, we could play pool. So we would go up and, and you know, we could hold our own a little bit. We'd play a couple games for $20 a game. And, you know, we'd play each other and have a couple of beers. It was like 75-cent Miller High Lifes, I think, back then at Mako's. Mako's was a great bar. Total shit show, but a great bar. Loud fucking jukebox, cheap beer. Miss that place. Anyways, we're upstairs playing pool at Mako's. And, uh, and I'm saying to my buddy, I'm like, hey. This one's locked down. I think I looked at my phone first when it was like 12-2, whatever. And I'll never forget, by the way, Jack Cust hit like fucking three home runs for the Oakland Athletics that game. Okay, the guy is the worst player in history. He had like, he struck out the most out of like anybody in the league. I don't even think he was batting 200. Like the what, Jack Cust. Like I'll just remember the name for as long as I live. Jack Cust. Every time I looked down at my phone, Jack Cust had hit another home run. And, and what turned from like a celebration, you know, maybe I had bet $50 on the game. Maybe, you know, which was a huge deal. That's like 60 beers at Mako's, <laughs> you know? And I go up 10 runs. I'm like, this is incredible. We got this one locked down. Time to start thinking about the late game. We'd take that 50 and make it work on the 10 o'clock game, baby. But nope, Jack cussed. One fucking home run after another, after another, after another. I think he went like five for five with like five home runs or something absolutely ridiculous. And I'll just never forget. And I remember for years after that betting betting baseball and watching the, the name Jack Cust. And I remember he was just always striking out, just strikeout, strikeout, strikeout. And I'm just thinking, man, the one game I got a 10-run lead, this motherfucker comes up and turns into Hank Aaron. Like, what is going on? <laughs> the point is, the point is, that there's never no risk, you know? There's never no risk because Jack Cust is the worst player in history. But every once in a while, he's going to pop off. Here's the box score for this game. Oh, my God. Justin Morneau on the Twins went three for five. He had seven RBIs. Justin Morneau popped off. He went off. Two home runs and a double. Michael Kadire was batting cleanup. He went four for five. And then you have, uh, oh yeah, Denard Spahn leading off. Who, that dude used to be fast. I remember him. 
And then the Twins bullpen. Brian Dunsing, Bobby Keppel, Jose Mahares, and Kevin Mulvey just absolutely blew the entire game. And here's the fucking box score for the Oakland Athletics. Are you ready? Hold on. Oh, Matt Holliday was also popped off. Here's Jack Cust, big old Jack Cust. Three for four. DH batting 750 for the game. Two runs, two RBIs. They even walked him once. He even he even pulled out a walk. He was batting an astounding 243 at the time. Incredible. And he only had one home run. But anyways, his name kept popping up. It was pissing me off. Matt Holliday popped off. Four for five with six RBIs. That's a good game. You know, Matt Holliday used to be able to hit. There's no uh, there's no way around it. What a team. Scott Hairston. I think that's the guy that uh, Larry Anderson in Philadelphia said he's like the worst player in history. I think uh, what happened? <laughs> I got to remember that story. But at some point, I got to see. Scott Hairston, Larry Anderson. I remember that. We were playing like the Braves or something. Or it was Fransky. Yeah, in 2012. I remember this. Major hat tip to the folks at Barstool for digging up audio of Scott Fransky going off on the Phillies' inability to get Scott Hairston out. Somebody figure out how to fucking get Scott Hairston out. He stinks, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's why we like Scott Fransky in this city. Let me see if I can play that clip. This is now turned into a baseball podcast. If you don't like it, sorry, but you're not in charge. I am. This is a fascist regime here. Oh, come on. Where's the audio? Barstool for digging up this audio. Come on. Not found. Boo. Boo. Fransky. Last Wednesday at City Field. So he was playing for the Mets at the time. Last Wednesday at City Field, a few minutes after Hairston opened the scoring in the fourth with a home run off Cliff Lee, Fransky ran himself right into a live mic when the Phillies radio broadcast went to commercial. Somebody figure out how to fucking get Scott Hairston out. He stinks. Jesus Christ. (laughs) So Scott Hairston was on that A's team. It was a perfect storm of the worst players in history, with the exception of Matt Holliday, who was pretty good. And I still lost. You know why? Because I was up 10 runs, and there's never no risk. That's why. There's never no risk. So with Bitcoin, there's never no risk. With COVID, there's never no risk. And by the way, by the way, back to tooting my own horn, because I'm feeling a way today. I'm feeling a certain kind of way. Back to tooting my own horn. When CNBC rolled out the usual group of incredible, fantastic brains on their network in March and April, after the uh, market started to uh, go ahead and rebound, you had a lot of people saying, we got to wait for the double bottom. We're going to wait for the double bottom on the dip. We think that the we got to test the lows again. That was the big thing in April. You know, the day when Bill Ackman was crying on CNBC and uh, was, you know, said hell is coming that day. Um, And I think later in the interview admitted, we're also buying Hilton or something. But uh, I think that day, that was the bottom. I remember watching that interview. And uh, by the way, the, the, the athletics thing fucked my whole night up that night, too. It fucked my whole night up. Now, I was on the receiving end of one of those when Greg Dobbs led the Philadelphia Phillies. Now I got to find this game, too. All right, I found it. I was on the receiving end of one of those when I had bet a Phillies game. This is incredible that I remember these two games. 
I was also on South Street this day, believe it or not. I remember being, I think I was at Mako's. I swear to God, I think I was at Mako's this day too with my buddy Ray. The first time I was with my buddy Colin, the second time I was with my buddy Ray. And here it is. Baseball is such an unpredictable sport. One team can have all the momentum, but in the blink of an eye, it can switch over to the other side. That's what makes the game great. Just when it can't get any worse for the Phillies, Greg Dobbs shines a line of a light of hope. See, I remembered off the top of my head, Greg Dobbs had a role in this game. The Phillies pulled off an improbable 9-7 comeback on an evening with a huge turn of events. There were several misplays on both sides. The errors carried over immediately Friday as Jimmy Rollins botched the very first play of the game. Several batters later, Johnny Gomes sent Joe Blanton's offering into the left field seats. Joe Blanton never settled in. Yeah, he had trouble doing that. Then fucking Fatty went deep and hit a home run when it mattered. So Joe Blanton will always be a Philadelphia legend. But anyways, this game he got knocked around. And uh, let's see. It looked like the game was over and the Reds had an easy victory. All the trouble came in the ninth. Yeah, that's what I remember. That's why this game was like incredible. Mike Leakey went out for the first complete game but ran into trouble. Shane Victorino led off with a double. And Leakey could not finish the game off. Ryan Howard drove in Victorino with a single, but the big momentum shift came off the bat of Greg Dobbs. Since being designated for assignment, Greg Dobbs has had a fire under his belt. I used to like Greg Dobbs, third baseman. He's starting to hit again. He smoked a three-run shot off the foul pole, putting the Phillies down 7-5. All right, so it was 7-2 going into the ninth. Now it's 7-5. Dusty Baker brings in closer Francisco Cordero. He didn't get the job done either. Ben Francisco drew a huge two-out walk. I think that's, uh, man, Ben Francisco. I'll mix him up with Ben Revere. I was say that's the guy that's never hit a home run, but I think that was Ben Revere. Then Cody Ransom earned his pinstripes. There's a name I haven't heard in 10 years. Cordero threw him an outside fastball, and he hit the ball where it was pitched. He sent it into the first row of the opposite field, and the score was evened. The Phillies were unable to score another in the ninth, but the six-run inning sent the game into extra innings for the second game night. Mike Ryan Madsen came in, threw a one, two, three, tenth. He used to throw heat. 95, Ryan Madsen. 95, 99. He had a couple of really good fucking years, man. That dude could throw a fastball. In the bottom of the tenth, a leadoff double once again started a rally. Raul Abanez, the ageless wonder, greeted Arthur Rhodes with a double, but Ryan Howard. Also, as I referred to him when he was playing for the Phillies as King Ding. Ryan Howard, King Ding, topped that with an opposite field blast. One of those effortless swings. Ryan Howard just fucking sticks the bat out over the plate and the ball just goes 450 feet. And then he would strike out probably his other four at-bats. Another day, another walk-off home run. Arthur Rhodes sure must hate facing the Phillies. He's given up six runs all year, five to the Phillies. So you can be on the receiving end of both good and bad news in baseball betting, and it's the same with the market. Back to April 2020, you have all these guys on CNBC saying that, you know, the double bottom's got to come in. We need to test the lows. It's like, do we really, though? Do we need to test the lows? The Fed just said they're going to buy every corporate bond that isn't fucking bolted down, and, and we're talking about testing the lows. And by April and March of 2020, it was evident that this thing was, hey, going to be a rough ride, going to be a problem, but not going to be the end of the world. And once the market got smoked, I entertained on this podcast in March called Being a Contrarian in a Time of Coronavirus, the idea of being a contrarian, not because I thought things were undervalued, because they weren't, 
not because I thought the economy was going to bounce back, because it wasn't, but because of just what the Fed was doing. They were buying everything they could. They were going to game genie the fucking entire stock market, and that's what they've done. And I said, it could be a tailwind. It could be a race to 4000 between gold and between uh, assets. And now you see, look, housing prices going apeshit. You can't even fucking buy a house. My buddy just put in a bid on a house near me for 500 Guy came in at five. The house was listed at 500 Guy came in over it at 550 He went 560 Guy came in at 620 cash with no inspection. He waived the inspection and paid $120,000 over listing price. Do you have any friends that are realtors? Talk to them. Because they're going to tell you exactly what the fuck's going on in the housing market right now. Right? That's inflation. That's price inflation. So you're not seeing it in gold yet. I don't know when it's going to make its way to gold, but it's going to make its way to the metals. It's inevitable. Sure as the fucking sun is going to rise tomorrow. Sure, you know, you want to talk about past performance as an indicator of future results? Okay, gold's been money for 5,000 years. Thank you very much. So by your logic, uh, I'm going to go with gold on that one. But let's just think going forward. Finite supply tangibly exists, has a commodity value. It's got that track record held in reserve by the central banks. That's a big one, folks. Can't help but notice that little convenient fact. So I think that will eventually rotate back into gold. But I was dead on balls accurate with my analysis of the market. Dead on balls. I remember I was buying stocks when Bill Ackman was on TV that day. I remember. I remember I bought American Express that day. I can remember it off the top of my head. I remember it clearly. I was like, yeah, here's a stock I always wanted to own. I like American Express, even though I just canceled my card with them. You want to bill me $95 a year to do nothing? I don't fucking think so, all right? And if you're listening and you work for American Express, I think that's a terrible shame because I enjoyed using the card. It made me feel like I was, uh, you know, it never really comes in handy. Sometimes you get into the airport thing, you know, where you can have a drink for free. That is worth it. That's worth it. Other than that, you know, I call the guy. I say, you're charging me $95 a year for this card. I said, it's just sitting in my wallet. I'm not using it and I got a zero balance. What would you like me to do? So, well, you're not familiar with the concierge services that we're offering you. I said, oh, yeah, tell me about it. He's like, well, you get a discount on AAA and, you know, fucking, oh, you know what he said? He's like, there's no preset spending limit. Like, that's some kind of benefit. I'm like, so what? I got other credit cards. They have spending limits on them. I know what I can put on them. Like, what, is that, what does that mean? No presets. Like, they're going to like they're gonna allow me to go out and buy a $15 million mansion on the beach, you know, and speculate with, uh, you know, millions of dollars at their expense. There's no preset limit. I remember I tried to buy a computer once with it years ago, which was like $1,500. And they were like, ah, oh, fraud protection, fraud protection. You got to call. You got to call. You know, I'm like, hello, I'm trying to buy a computer. It's $1,500. Like, well, you know, sir, all right. We just want to make sure it's you, you know, whatever. No preset spending limit. $95 a year for nothing. Get the fuck out of here. Anyways. So I got a lot of shit right about COVID and I wanted to celebrate that. There were a couple other things I wanted to talk about, but we got a little off topic. One of which is Kathy Wood, whose ETFs are buying her own ETFs. I'm not sure if you saw this one. But the ARK ETF is buying other ARK ETFs and vice versa. And ETFs are buying components in other ARK ETFs and vice versa. It's really turning into one big incestuous, uh, disgusting, I don't even know what you call it, 
uh, masturbatory active management Ponzi fest, I guess would be <laughs> would be the best term I could come up with off the top of my head. I'm not sure that's ever been used in the world of finance before, but I'm fringe finance. Remember fringe finance. By the way, I'm not an investment advisor and none of this is investment advice, so I'm not recommending any of these things. I usually say that at the beginning of the podcast, but I was distracted today by fucking Jack Cust, so I forgot to mention it. This is definitely not financial advice. Always speak to your financial advisor. I am fringe finance. Anyways, I you know, the the Bill Huang implosion happened because he had all this leverage and all this crap and that dude imploded because banks extended him, you know, $80 billion in leverage on like a, on like a $26 portfolio. <laughs> and of course, he was a mentor of Kathy Woods, I read, or they knew each other. Or he was an investor in her fund or whatever. And uh, just if people had seen, if Bill Huang was doing a daily investment letter, people had seen him take a little more leverage today. I'm taking a little bit more leverage today again. I'm taking a little bit more leverage today again. At some point, somebody would have said, hey, Bill. It's time for an intervention, buddy. Maybe you should just calm the fuck down with the leverage a little bit. You're getting a little out of control. And I'm thinking now we're watching Kathy Wood's trades every day, right? Because ARK posts these trades. And we know what her actively managed ETF components are. And it seems like every day she adds a little bit more. Oh, here's a speculative bullshit company here. Oh, here's a company we own in another ETF here. Oh, here's a little bit more of our own ETF. Okay. And every day we get these little updates. At some point, somebody's going to have to say something, right? I mean, I'm already seeing these tweets kind of being passed around by very sharp people who notice these things immediately, maybe even too early, who say, oh, looks like something interesting's going on here. Nobody wants to say anything, but it just looks like something interesting is happening. What this is an interesting way to allocate your ETFs, isn't it? Something very interesting. It's the sharpest people that start seeing it first. And it starts leaking maybe a little bit into the press. Ah, we're buying a little bit of this ETF here. It's okay, you know. John Deere is a space stock. It's all right. We've done our research. <laughs> Can somebody please show me that, that research note that they put together before including... John Deere, the tractor company, into their space exploration ETF. What's the reasonable explanation? Anyways, at some point, somebody's going to have to notice. They're just going to say, all right, you know, and maybe she'll back off. Maybe she'll de-risk things a little bit, you know, and uh, and her portfolios will be able to breathe and some of her things will rise in price. So she'll, she'll sell some things. Look, Kathy, congratulations on all your success. I think that you should de-risk a little bit when you have the chance. All right. But maybe she won't. Maybe we'll keep getting daily trade updates that she's selling her blue chips for companies that, you know, need to sell stock to survive, essentially. And you got to understand that this is all happening at the very tip of this bubble. The Schiller PE is 37 now. So this is like this is like going to the highest part of the Empire State Building and then putting that little fucking antenna on top. She's the little antenna. She's already she's already as high as you could go on the bubble of Schiller PE of 37. The bubble is at, you know, escape velocity or whatever it is, like the, you know, five molecules before it bursts. She's like, let's go there and let's just put a little bit more on top of that. So 
I think there's some risk there. I'm short uh, ARKK in very modest size, but have been. That's kind of like my hedge, because I think if something's gonna go, it's gonna be tech. I and we've already kind of seen that, right? We've already seen the rumblings of that over the last couple weeks, couple months. Tech has really been the volatile area. I think a big part of that is I think the Nasdaq got goosed by a lot of this call buying by SoftBank and Goldman Sachs, which they admitted to in 2020. I mean, the Nasdaq essentially like doubled. The index doubled off its lows in like less than a year. That's not healthy. Remember Loveline, Adam Carolla, perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. You know, people <laughs> people call out and be like, I'm peeing purple, perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. You know, <laughs> my left ass cheek hurts when I watch Seinfeld. Perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. And that's what's going on here. Perfectly normal, perfectly healthy, an entire index doubles over the course of... So if you don't think that there's some goosed up gains in the NASDAQ from 2020, you haven't been paying attention. That's why I think if something's going to go, that's what's going to go. That's what's going to... And think about this. The next crisis, because the Fed is still dealing with the COVID crisis, what happens on the next crisis? What happens if another crisis happens tomorrow? What does the Fed do? What are their options? Interest rates are at zero and they're buying unlimited everything for all of eternity. Thank you very much. It doesn't get much more open-ended QE than what we're doing now. So what's your next option, Jerome, if the whole thing takes a shit tomorrow and the country goes into deep recession or we enter into hyperinflation or the NASDAQ, you know, just turns out to be a missing child at some point? What happens then? What's in the toolkit now? Another 60 Minutes appearance isn't going to cut it. Has Neil Kashkari thought about this? Have you modeled this one out, Neil? What happens if we wake up tomorrow and let's just say crypto goes? There's an exogenous event. You know, all of a sudden, crypto, the the whole bubble collapses in crypto, if it's a bubble, right? Then what happens? It's like what? Crypto, I think Bitcoin's a trillion dollars now. I think probably all the crypto's probably a couple trillion dollars. That would be big enough to make a dent. And it's the same people buying crypto that are buying the other crap in the NASDAQ. So you'd see some big drawdowns. You'd see some margin selling. Huang style. See some Huang style selling. (laughs) Maybe you'd like to tell Mr. Huang yourself. So I wanted to just make that point about Kathy Wood and the NASDAQ. And I think it's just, uh, I think it's a bit much. That's, That's what I think. I think it's just a bit much. I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Don't you? And I think, you know, the market has no choice but to keep an eye on it now because she's such a popular uh, investment manager now. We're now past SPY 4000. And I think it's worth really taking a hard look at where we are. I think the Fed is going to have to act at some point. I think inflationary pressure might cause them to act or slow down. You know, QE could be open-ended. We're going to run into something here financial, though. That isn't COVID. COVID was a... exogenous problem that affected the financial world. Now we're set up for a problem coming from within the financial world. Which one of these things is going to break first? That is a very good question, but it is an inevitability that it will happen. And we have to keep an eye on it. I don't know if it'll be hyperinflation. I don't know if it'll be consumer prices. I don't know if it'll be, um, you know, crypto going. I don't know if it'll be tech going. I I don't know if an investment manager is going to blow up. I don't know. But starting to see these little warning signs coming from the financial world. And we need to kind of pay attention. Schiller PE of 37 is ridiculous. Anyway, you slice it, it's ridiculous. And it's not a question of whether or not these things are, are valued improperly. 
versus uh, you know what they're going to earn in the future. This is all just a question of whether or not the bubble can keep going. Can the Fed keep the bubble going at this point? And that's all investors are worried about. That's it. They'll pay, you know, whatever Tesla is, 150 times sales now because they are thinking about 2030. And you got all this young money, like I said earlier, coming into the market. You have retail investors that have never dealt with any type of big, you know, systemic financial problem. And so what do they have to expect? Everything that they've ever seen their whole lives has just gone up. Why would they think anything's going to be different tomorrow? But just like COVID, one day you wake up and all of a sudden sometimes things change. And the only point I'm trying to make is it's good to be wary of that. It's good to keep your head in that game. You know what I mean? If you bet 100 on Minnesota and they go up 10 runs and the casino wants you to let you cash out at $98 instead of paying you the full 100, just take the 98. Take it. You never know when Cust is going to pop off, folks. You never know when Cust is going to wake up. Probably his fucking dog died or something that day. You know what I mean? Just give me a bat. I'm going to work. Like Matt Stairs. Remember that fucking home run he hit against the Dodgers? They interviewed him after that game. He said, the only thing I've ever thought about my whole life is hitting home runs. (laughs) It's like, well, that's it, buddy. That's what we brought you on for. Fucking they brought him on just to do that, just to pinch hit. That's why he was on the team. He was like 42 years old, 270 pounds. You know, only thing I ever think about is hitting home runs. It's like, hey, man, he came in. He did it. He's going to be a legend for the rest of his life. I'll always remember stupid Jonathan Broxton, too. The guy that delivered up that pitch. Great job by him that day. Matt Stairs hits one into the night. That's what Joe Buck said. I'll remember that call for the rest of my life. That always happens. You get the chance to take the 98 on 100 bet, though. Just take it, will you? De-risk a little bit. Let's all calm down. I'm going about my day. I have a list of like 20 things here I wanted to talk about today, and I got to none of them. So once again, I've been bested by Jack Cust, and I'll leave you with that. Peace.